Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll see how our retro pumpkin chiffon pie translated to our 21st century kitchens and taste buds. And we'll introduce a pumpkin soft pretzel from an Alaskan blogger and cookbook author that may prove irresistible. Then, speaking of our 49th state, Andrea interviews Julia O'Malley, Alaska's premier food history expert, about what it's like to shop and bake in a remote location. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, this month really is turning out to be pumpkin palooza in my house. Mm. <laughs> and very good. I have a story to share related to that. And you might recall back in episode 45, I had a segment called Almost Edible. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So far, it's been a one off, but. Yes. Yeah, well, eh, it's, still a, it's still a one-off, but I thought I had another late-breaking entry. So back in that episode, in episode 45, I had made my traditional jacked-up banana bread from Smitten mm-hmm. Kitchen that I do all the time, yes. but I had done it without measuring the bourbon or the butter, and I ended yeah. up with kind of this gooey, boozy mess. Which sounds like it should be a, two great words, but gooey and boozy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a little too raw for banana bread. This week, I ran into a similar thing. I was playing around with some cookies, and I was trying a cookie that had some pumpkin and some caramel, and I had read a few of the comments saying that these cookies are more like cake batter instead of cookies, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people said instead of melting the butter in the recipe, they just let it soften. So I okay. followed that instruction. Okay. I baked my first batch, and they were definitely like cake batter and not like cookies. Okay. They didn't look pretty. I had trouble getting them off of the parchment. I mean, they really stuck to the parchment. Did they spread out? What did they do? They spread out and kind of got flat. Uh-huh. And yeah. the, probably the, the most concise review was when I gave it to my daughter, and she took a bite, and she said, why am I eating a sponge? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Words no baker ever wants to hear. (laughs) But this recipe used so many ingredients. I mean, it had like four cups of flour. And I actually went back and checked the recipe because as I was making it, I was thinking something's a little bit off on these ingredients. Did I somehow accidentally double this? Okay. But no, I, I followed the recipe. I'm fairly confident I did everything correctly, although... Loyal listeners might be raising an eyebrow to hear me say that, but I really do feel strongly that I followed the recipe. So I just took all of this batter and I put it in my fridge. Okay. And I could not stop thinking about it. Obsessed. So over the next couple of days, I just was like, what am I going to do with that cookie batter? What am I going to do with that cookie batter? So how much did you have? Because you're saying this this took like four cups of flour. I'm thinking this is a substantial amount of batter you have in there. 
It was substantial. The recipe, as designed, said it would make between 55 and 60 cookies. Okay. Wow. All right. Five dozen. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. It was big. So I thought, well, my my number one complaint about it really was not the flavor. It was the texture Mm -hmm. and the way they baked. Mm -hmm. And it was so cake-like that I thought, well, I'm just going to turn this into a cake. Okay. Now, I just went rogue. I didn't look anything up. I didn't do any research. I just thought, what would I do to turn this into a cake? That's my girl. (laughs) And I took two egg whites and whipped them into soft peaks and made a nice little meringue. And I folded that gently into the batter. It was still not cake batter enough for me. It wasn't runny enough for me. So I then added in a third a cup of sour cream and I folded that in and now it was runny enough for me. And so I made two nine inch cake pans, cake rounds with this pumpkin batter. Nice. Nice. Baked those in a 350 oven. I think I baked them for about 25, 26 minutes. And so that was my first step. And I thought, okay, I've now made a pumpkin cake. What else am I going to do? Okay. I looked in my fridge. I had some cream cheese. And I had mentioned last week's episode, I always buy my pumpkin in bulk ahead of time. So I knew I had some canned pumpkin. Yeah. So I whipped up some pumpkin cream cheese frosting. I, you know, didn't, again, I didn't follow a recipe. Yeah. I just took eight ounces of cream cheese and I threw in I think I don't know half a cup of pumpkin and I threw in some of the traditional pumpkin pie spices like cinnamon and I threw some sugar in there okay that made a really nice frosting so I put that between the two cake layers and then it still wasn't very pretty it was starting to look better I only made enough frosting to go on the middle layer between the two cake layers so I thought well now I need something on top and so I candied some pecans and I did follow a recipe for that I found a good recipe for candy to pecans so I'll put a link to the show notes in that piled those on top and now it was looking really pretty and then (laughs) the final thing that I thought would be great was to throw some salted caramel on top and just sort of drizzle it and I wanted it dripping down the side of the cake and all of that. But alas, I ran out of time. I mean, this was something I was working on it a little bit every day. This was the cake that took like four days for me to make. Yeah. And so at the last minute I did grab, I had just a prefab, you know, jar of salted caramel in my pantry. And you know what? That just turned out really well. So I drizzled that all over the top and over the pecans and everything. And I got to tell you, I am so proud of my... (laughs) homemade, I don't even know what to call it, pumpkin caramel cream cheese pecan cake. And it really turned out well. Well, I have a few thoughts for you. Number one, I would like to remind you kindly that we record at my dinner time. So now I am... (laughs) I am so hungry and craving a piece of your incredible, incredible cake. And I think we need to change. The episode has to go from almost edible to amazingly edible or something like that to show yes. Yeah. Evolution. And here's what I'm also thinking, Andrea. Preheated cookbook. All right. Every time there's an original recipe, you got to write it <laughs> down. So got to jot your notes while it's like still fresh in your mind. I know you were kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But oh, that sounds so good, my friend. So good. That's true. I don't know that I could recreate it exactly the way I had it. But I have a, I have a general idea of what I did. The other thing I was really proud of myself is listeners who's been with us for a long time know our very first month of our show episodes, you know, one 
one through four were all about yeah. cake and I found cake very intimidating. So here I am. Yeah. Two years later, I have formed a new relationship with cake. I am now able to treat cake like I treat other things, which is I will figure it out. It doesn't have to be perfect. I, you know, don't have to follow a recipe exactly the way it's been written and life will still go on. And that's kind of how it turned out. And my family tried it. They all loved it. We had some guests over. They loved it. So it was a big hit. And I am very happy and proud of myself. As well you should be. And also for saving what was a substantial amount of batter that was going to have to be tossed. I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, you really were in a win-win situation there as far as you already had the the batter. It was going to go to waste. So why Agreed. not experiment? I love it. Well, do try to do try to jot it because I would love to love to see that that cake again. Yeah. Will do. I did get some pictures. Yeah, I did. So I will definitely post pictures. Oh, yeah. Great. Well, moving on from that with my stomach rumbling, let us talk about the <laughs> pumpkin chiffon pie that we baked this week from Southern Living. It was a coconut pumpkin chiffon pie as we chatted about uh, last episode in episode 95. This has been a pie that's always intrigued me, but I've never made. Andrea, you had had quite a bit of experience with this being a uh, what you believe to be a Southern classic actually turns out. Monroe Strauss, a name I will now never forget, invented that in California <laughs> in the 1920s. So, Andrea, you'd had some experience with a chiffon pie. How did this go for you? Monroe Strauss, more commonly known as the Pie King, I will add in. <laughs> Do forget, that's right. This coconut pumpkin chiffon pie turned out so well for me. I oh. cannot say enough about it. It reminds me of one of my most favorite pies in the world, which is the triple coconut cream pie from Tom Douglas at Dahlia Lounge. Yes. That pie takes like what feels like days to make. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an extensive recipe. This one is a lot easier. There are several steps, but the way that it's staged mm -hmm. actually makes sense. How can I say that more intelligently? A lot of times the recipes will say things like preheat your oven and do a step and then you find out step two is you chill something for two hours, you know, and you're like, well, that was silly. It's well ordered. Yeah. It's well ordered. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. yes. Like yes. the way the steps are actually makes sense for the resting times and all that sort of thing. So step one, you know, you whisk together your milk and your gelatin. You let it stand and then you cook it over medium heat, stirring it constantly for one minute until the gelatin dissolves. Then you stir in your pumpkin and your spices, your egg yolks and your sugar. This part was a little bit of a challenge for me. It said cook, stirring constantly five to seven minutes or until slightly thickened. Mm -hmm. Stefan, right. stirring constantly, I set my timer for six minutes. Do you literally just stand at the stove and stir for six minutes? Do you do you read? Do you sing? I mean, what do you do to occupy yourself for six minutes while you're stirring? It's true. It's true. It's kind of like <laughs> making a risotto where you can't go anywhere. You're a bit chained to the oven. Yeah, I just try to have a moment of zen, I guess. That's, yeah, yeah, that's okay. all I can tell you. Yeah, no, I did the same thing. I thought to myself, you know, this is crazy. I should be able to just stand here and focus on one thing for six minutes. And I did. And I enjoyed it. Good. I didn't notice until the very end I was getting some of those big, thick bubbles. And of course, I, I then read the next line that said, do not boil. Mm. And I was like, uh-oh, I hope I didn't. Yeah. I don't yeah, really yeah. think I boiled it. But I was getting some of those big bubbles. And I put it into a bowl. It says you could chill it 40 minutes or okay. to room temperature, stirring halfway through. I had mentioned on last week's episode, episode 95, that in the video, they said you could 
could just leave it out and stir it every five to ten minutes. So that's what I did. But I did transfer it into another bowl so that it could cool more quickly. Okay. Step two is while your pumpkin pie filling is cooling on the countertop, you go ahead and roast your coconut in your oven to get it nice and golden brown. I ended up using two kinds of coconut. For the coconut that goes in the crust, I use the regular sweetened shredded coconut that you can buy in the grocery store aisle. Mm -hmm. But for the coconut on top, I did go to my co-op and pick up in the bulk section those nice big coconut chips because I thought those were so much prettier. So I roasted two different kinds of coconut. Nice. In step three, you go ahead and make your crust. That is the graham cracker crumbs, the butter, the sugar, and that shredded coconut. You press it into a pie plate and freeze it for 10 minutes. This is one place where I ran into a little dilemma in the recipe. It says a 10-inch pie plate. Do you have any 10-inch pie plates? I'm just now seeing that. (laughs) (laughs) Hence my very long pause. (laughs) I used my, I believe it's a 9. Yeah, that's all I have. That is a strange size, isn't it? I don't have a 10. I'm sure I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason I'm calling it out is I had a lot of leftover filling. And so I think if you can find a 10-inch pie plate, go for it and use it. Or more importantly, I think make sure you're using your deep dish pie plate. Okay. I actually did something a little bit rogue here that I decided to make mini pies instead of one big pie. Oh, super cute. Yeah, family of three, kind of hard for us. Well, it's not hard for us to go through a whole pie, but perhaps it's (laughs) ill-advised. So I made one six-inch mini pie in like a little glass mini pie pan that I have that's a bit on the shallow side. And then I did that trick I did before back with that butterscotch curry pie where I used the mason jar lids for the wide mouth Mm -hmm. mason jars. And so you take your ring and then you take your metal piece and you flip it upside down and you put your crust in there. Yeah. So I did five of the mini masons and one mini six-inch pie and I still had a ton of the leftover filling. Okay, so that's really interesting because whatever pie dish I use, and again, I'm pretty sure that is a nine inch. I'm going to go check the minute we're done recording, of course. But I really liked how billowing and tall it was. I thought that was the look they were going for. To I have think it, it is. Very kind of extravagant, very tall piece of art almost. And so that didn't bother me that I had so much there. I mean, I, you know, the, the finished piece was maybe like five or six inches high. It was just incredible. And because of the, the gelatin and the consistency, it, it stayed upright. So I actually didn't, didn't mind that. But I can see how, yes, that if you are just kind of spilling over the sides or something, you are going to have a little extra filling. Oh, yeah. Step four, you go ahead and make your meringue. That's beating your egg whites at high speed with your heavy-duty electric stand mixer. This is another place where I I ran into a little problem. It says eight minutes or until soft peaks form. My soft peaks formed at two minutes. Yeah, mine in one. Okay. Exactly. Okay. I thought I had done something wrong there. And it's funny, when I watch the video, she doesn't use the stand mixer. She uses the little handheld, and she uses the handheld with one whisk attachment. It's not even the double beaters. Okay. So I thought, well, maybe with a handheld, you would need eight minutes, but no way with a heavy-duty stand mixer. Just definitely watch that. I had wondered if it was because my eggs weren't pasteurized. Mm. Maybe something about that, too. But if you you also encountered the same issue, now, just if you're going to bake this, just watch that really carefully. Don't set it and then yes. walk away for eight minutes. Or I don't know what you're going to have. Cement. No. I don't know. I don't know. So, I don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I believe you'll have some spackling if you've got a construction project. Some grout. Yeah. Yes. No. 
Once you have those beautiful billowy egg whites, the timing on this, again, I mentioned what a well-ordered recipe this is. It just works out perfectly that right about the time your pumpkin mixture has cooled to room temperature, your crust is done and you can pull it out of the freezer. Your meringue is done and you could fold it into your pumpkin mixture and you can go ahead and then put that pumpkin mixture right into the crust and then you do want to chill the crust with the pumpkin mixture for two hours or until it's set. Yeah. And I actually did, I think, two hours exactly and it did set up quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The final step, you beat your cream and your vanilla until you make some soft peaks and you add in a little bit more sugar until you get some stiff peaks. Top that on top of your pumpkin mixture. You add your final little bit of toasted coconut. That's where I use those coconut chips. I thought this was beautiful. I served this to my husband and he said, this this is what I have been telling you why I don't like pumpkin pie because what I want is this. It's lighter. It's fluffier. It doesn't oh. feel like you're eating like a big vegetable. Yeah. yeah, Huge success in my house. Yeah. This was really popular in my house as well. And I know we talked when we introduced this, Andrea, back in episode 95, that when we've messed around with a traditional pumpkin pie in the past, it hasn't necessarily gone well for us, either yeah. for, for the two of us personally or for listeners who are very protective I think of that traditional Thanksgiving or Christmas time pumpkin pie but I think this is enough different that it can be another entry into that category again the filling is like a mousse it's very light yes. it's very fluffy but it has that wonderful pumpkin flavor and then you have this addition of the, the coconut which is a wonderful combination I as I spoke about last episode I cannot find graham crackers so I used ginger snaps I think that's a great substitution I really liked oh. it oh I was wondering how that turned out. That sounded like such a good substitution to me. Yes, absolutely. So even if you can find graham crackers, you might consider that substitution. I think it works really well. I did it just one for one as a substitution. It is a stronger flavor, and I might pump up the coconut because it competed a little bit too mm. strongly with the coconut flavor. But interesting, something to play around with. I did find the sweet and shredded coconut at the American Food Store. I had great success with my leaf gelatin again, so I'm feeling really good and confident about substituting that and how it's dissolving, how it's setting up in the pie. And listeners, if you don't know what Stefan's talking about there with her leaf gelatin, go back and listen to episode 95 where we talked about the importance of ingredients and she explained what leaf gelatin is where she lives in England. That's what's more popular as opposed to the powder, gelatin powder that I can get here in the States. Yeah, thank you for that. Absolutely. Go and go and listen. You'll know what I'm what I'm saying. So the only thing I did a little bit differently here is that when I know I'm not going to eat an entire pie and it's covered in whipping cream, I do not cover the pie in whipping cream because I don't like the texture as it's sitting in the fridge and how it changes. Mm, okay. So I just whipped the cream, but I just put it on as a dollop instead of as a covering. Oh, so yeah. that's just a personal thing. If I was going to serve this to a house full of people, I was going to serve it all <laughs> with my hot knife, then I would have <laughs> happily covered the pie. Did you use a hot knife? I have to know. I did use the hot knife. Again, Yay! that was a tip we gave last week. That came from the video. And so I ran my knife under, I have one of those boiling hot water dispensers. That's right. I ran yeah. my hot knife, I, well, I ran my knife under there. It turned high, hot. I wiped it. And then I was just cutting my little minis. So of course, I cut one just right in half and it just cut beautifully. It was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great tip for maybe a lot of fruit type pies or custard pies. So I'm going to keep that one in my pocket. So yeah, big win here. I think it's just worth 
trying because it's different enough than a traditional pumpkin pie that, you know, I always say I eat that pie at Thanksgiving. And I say, I love pumpkin pie. Why don't I make it more often? But it, it never feels right to me in like April to be having a piece of pumpkin pie. I think having a piece of pumpkin chiffon pie in April is going to feel just right. I agree. I think the coconut is the key. And I do want to add, you're not going to like this particular pie if you don't like coconut. Coconut is a dominant flavor mm. in it. So in my household, we love coconut. This worked really well for us. But yeah. I did want to throw that out there. Yeah. Good point. I also wanted to give a tip of the hat to the recipe author. Her name was Barbara Delaney, and she's from Columbia, Maryland. So this was published in Southern Living, but it was Barbara Delaney's recipe. And I couldn't be more happy about it. Two thumbs up. From me too. Way to go, Barbara. Up next, our bake-along is going to be pumpkin soft pretzels. These come from food blogger and, again, another cookbook author named Maya Wilson. Her website is Alaska from Scratch. And stay tuned to listen to my interview with Julia O'Malley a little bit later in the show, and you will hear her mention Maya Wilson as well. Now, listeners, you might be thinking to yourself, didn't Andrea and Stefan just bake a soft pretzel? What's going on here? But <laughs> We love them. In our defense, I would like to add, number one, we baked that all the way back in episode 68, which was uh, hot buttered yum. And that was back in March <laughs> of 2018 when we made that King Arthur flour hot buttered pretzel. Oh, yeah. And number two, I do have to add that this is Stefan's husband's number one favorite dessert. And for two years... <laughs> He requested, when are you guys doing a hot buttered pretzel? So I feel it's only fair that we, you know, we don't just trot it out once every couple of years, but that we we kept it going. Aw. Yeah, he he really will appreciate this. I think also, I mean, there's pumpkin in this pretzel dough, so that's a new one for me. Oh, me too. Yeah. It also has cinnamon sugar on top, so it's going to maybe veer a little bit sweeter yeah. than than those King Arthur's. I think also you raise a really good point that if you are new to pretzel making, it would not hurt. It would it would only help to go back and look at that King Arthur flour pretzel recipe because it just runs through a lot of basics about making the pretzels. Good point. I think Maya is assuming that you are coming into pretzel making with some with some knowledge here. So some um, skills with some skills. <laughs> So um, if that's not the case or you just want a refresher, go back and look at that recipe. Of course, it's linked in our show sheets for that episode, which was episode 68. You can take a look because there's things when we made those the first time, you form the pretzels and you soak them in a bath of warm water and baking soda. Yes. So if you've never done that before, that might seem might seem really strange and odd to you. But there's just some best practices that you might want to get familiar with before you then tackle the, the soft pumpkin pretzels here. Yeah, good reminder. And I'm recalling, too, that I needed my daughter's help when it came to twisting and shaping. And apparently in the elementary schools, they spent a lot of time making pretzels. So it was no problem for her. But I tell you, I needed a little tutorial on that part. Andrea, the one thing I did want to call out in the ingredients, the first ingredient is yeast. Of course, this is a yeast dough, and you want to make sure that you're, number one, using fresh yeast. It will have an expiration date on it. Make sure it's fresh. It's not last season's. Mm. Also, it just says yeast. So Good the point. clue here is that she wants you to use active dry yeast. And there are other types of yeast in the grocery stores. You do not want a rapid rise or an instant or a bread machine yeast. You want an active yeast. And the reason that I know that is because active yeast needs a little sugar and warm water to bloom or to be activated and that's the first step in the instructions. Ah, okay. Make sure you're using an active dry yeast here. Good. Thank you for that tip. And I really like the tip about the expiration date. I we mentioned that 
last week when we were talking about check your pumpkin pie spice. It might be a year old. And same thing, always check your yeast before you use it. Absolutely. Remember, we'll have a link to these recipes in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 96, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook page. Our next guest was first brought to Andrea and my attention back in September of 2017 when loyal listener Megan had posted an article by food blogger Julia O'Malley, and it was about the cake mix queen. I know it got a lot of attention when it was up on our Facebook page. Yes. It was about how rural Alaskans make do and make incredible creations using a limited amount of resources, and one of them is a cake mix. So luckily for us, Megan, who is a dear friend of mine, was able to actually put Andrea in touch with Julia O'Malley, who is the premier food historian and expert on Alaskan cooking and baking and sourcing of ingredients. You guys had a wonderful chat. So let's listen to that interview. Andrea is talking with Julia O'Malley. Welcome to the show, Julia O'Malley. Julia is Alaska's premier food journalist, berry picker, hunter, and storyteller. Hello, Julia. Hi. Julia, I first learned about you way back in September 2017. Our loyal listener, Megan, posted a link to your article in the New York Times that was in Alaska's far-flung villages, happiness is a cake mix. (laughs) And Megan was so proud of you and of the article and the way it highlighted the creativity and the resourcefulness of Alaskans. And she thought it was perfect for us at Preheated because she felt like your story really showed the role that baking has in bringing a community of people together, which is, of course, why we do Preheated. So we just up front want to say we think you're the perfect guest for Preheated. You're a perfect match. Fantastic. I'll do my best to live up to that. Well, speaking of your article, it's all about how people in rural Alaska bake while managing the expense and scarcity of store-bought food. And for our listeners who haven't read the article yet, we'll post a link to it in our show notes. After I read it, one thing I was curious about, you mentioned people using unusual ingredients in their cake mixes or making substitutions like, you know, using mayonnaise in place of an egg. And it got me thinking, what's the most unusual ingredient or substitution you've seen home bakers in Alaska use? Urban Alaska, where the city where I live in Anchorage is just like most of America, but rural Alaska, which is like, you know, Alaska is huge and it's this far flung place where like you can only reach communities by small plane and you know occasionally boat Mm -hmm. that's a whole and a whole other world okay good distinction yeah those communities are primarily alaska native and people are situated in landscapes and within cultures that are you know many hundreds of years old um i say that because so what's happened is there are these kind of amalgamations that occur with sub, what we call here subsistence foods which are wild foods um that those communities rely on and then the sort of shelf stable convenience foods that are most affordable in the local store so you see it in lots of different ways people making a hamburger helper with caribou or whatever Okay. If you think of any of the fresh ingredients that you might need that you might be able to get at a usual grocery store, a lot of that stuff is sort of not always available. So people are subbing in a lot of things for eggs and butter. And, you know, there's a lot of Crisco use in the villages. 
other fats also, like their animal fats, you know, the rendering of fats from oh yeah, caribou or seal. Certainly I have not heard of baking with seal oil or seal fat, but there's a lot of seal oil use. Um, but, you know, they'll, there's a lot of egg collecting. So people use seagull eggs. That's instead of regular eggs. That's happened. The other thing is that, um, which is, I don't know if it's the best health-wise, but people tend to try to find recipes where they can just like sub in a soda for like all of it. A soda like a like a Sprite or a Coke? Yeah, like throw in a Sprite or a Coke. You know, Coke might be in chocolate and Sprite might be in like a white cake. But oh. they do that because, you know, for better or for worse in some places that, you know, these are also places that don't, they're one of the last places in America where there isn't indoor plumbing in some of them. Um, and people don't have potable water. So people drink a lot of bottled water and bottled water tends to be more expensive than soda. Sure. Um, people will sub in, you know, a Sprite and then into a cake mix and it will be the liquid and the egg and all of it. And the thing about those cake mixes is they're like bulletproof, man. Yeah. You know, it's hard to mess those up. Um, they're just, and there's also no bakery in most places. There's no, and there's no fresh baked goods coming in. You know, the, the baking of something, the act of baking it um, and the ritual of baking it and then the act of sharing it it really kind of fits into the larger culture around food in those places where there's a lot of people really participate in eating and sharing a lot. Yeah, it it looked like there were people using them. I mean, they talked about cakewalks and they might be fundraisers for someone who, you know, is maybe going through a cancer scare and the people are rallying around them to help them raise money or, you know, for someone's birthday or that kind of thing. Yeah, I loved that culture of the cake lady. I thought that was so great. Right. So another food that's like super Alaskan, and I grew up with it. My mom grew up with it. It's super common in villages is tang. Familiar with tang? Oh, yeah. The astronauts drank it. I mean, I I bought into that marketing campaign as a kid. It is kind of my goal to make a tang cake. (gasps) Oh. Totally thinking about writing a recipe for like a tang cake. Maybe it would involve the other, another common food, childhood food for me is like the, um, those little mandarin oranges. (laughs) That came in the can. Yes. Yes. Um, but I follow these people on Instagram who are like always in the villages are always make baking cakes, baking bread, and they have this sort of informal role in their community. They are the, they supply the bread. They are the baker. Yeah. Uh, and it's something I like. It's very small town, but it's also very rural. And there's just something sort of nice about that. Yeah, it's a it's an important role. It it really is. A few weeks ago, we were making a cake that had apricots as a primary ingredient. And I live in Olympia, Washington. You know, we've got, I don't know, 50,000 people here. I could not find any apricots anywhere. And my co-host, Stefan, lives in London, England. And she was just, as she said, spoiled for choice. I mean, she had so many apricot options, she couldn't even believe it. It made me think about our listeners who live in big cities and have this plethora of grocery stores or they can order food online. What can they learn from the rural Alaska home bakers who are not spoiled for choice and have to make do with what they have on hand? So I'm working on a book right now that's I've spent a lot of time studying Alaska's cookbooks from the last uh, hundred years, Ooh. you know, and then I've been writing some recipes inspired by that. And what I will say is my, the way I write recipes is the way Alaskans cook. So I often offer 
several different substitutions. Okay. So there is this whole idea of like, okay, well, what can be substituted having like a nice fluency in kind of what you can what you can swap out. The other thing is that Alaskans are pantry builders. Mm. And, you know, we are, our food world, our food people here are really as obsessed with sourcing ingredients as they are with cooking. And so it's like you, an Alaskan cook has all, and this is, this goes back to forever, you know, where there was like chocolate wrapped in paper in the back of the cupboard. But, you know, so these pantries are full of shelf stable things that often work for substitution. So like an example would be, you know, I'm looking at these recipes from way back in the day for sourdough. And I was surprised to find that the starters are being made with combinations of white flour and other flours Mm -hmm. that were more available. So you would see like a buckwheat flour starter or a corn flour starter. I just found that to be interesting, but it was all, it had to do with cost and availability. And the cooks were like, well, you know, I'm just going to work with what I've got. So, and there's also sort of just an attitude where you don't have to have everything be perfect, but there's a fluency in substitution, I think is maybe, is maybe the main thing the Alaskan cooks have. So they're like, all right, I don't have an egg. What's the list of things I can use? I don't have butter. What are the list of things I can use? You know, I don't have real milk. What are the list of things I can use? You know, I see. I love cooking that way. I crowdsourced like a recipe for rhubarb crisp. And I was like, how do you guys make it? And they're like, oh, I just use like whichever peaches like got bruised on the boat ride over. I like, you know, one time I just use like some oatmeal packets that I was all I had at camp. Oh, yeah. 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 And so I wrote a recipe where I'm like, all right, you could just put these, just, you could sub in oatmeal packets here, just reduce the sugar, you know, that kind of thing. So that's very Alaskan. And you said the second thing you said is that they're experts at sourcing. Could you say a little bit more about that? Do you, do you mean they're like going out and finding things or? Oh man, uh, we're, we're a little bit hoardery. I'm going to say that. <laughs> But it's more like um, people are like looking at, okay, well, this is this thing at the store or the village store and it costs $5. But like, what if I bought it in bulk on Amazon and had it shipped, you know, prime? Um, so there's like people looking at the cost of things because everything here is inflated because of the distance from everywhere else. Like, I mean, most of our groceries come up by container ship. And so it's like two weeks in the dark for produce. So none of the produce is all that good, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it just costs money. So there's that. And then there, we're just, we, I, we have like food ideation where we're just like thinking about this one thing we want to make. And then we're like looking at the recipe and then we're like piecing it together. So it's like, all right, I'm going to get some mirin. And I know there's like this one store over on the other side of town that like sometimes has it. And, you know, so people also tend to think about it for a while and collect it. But the practice of like taking an extra suitcase when you travel and Alaskans are really well traveled. Um, They've Mm -hmm. been around a ton. They're in and out. A lot of them have military experience, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, like the bubble wrap in the suitcase and the going to and it's still my favorite thing to do to go to the grocery store, like anywhere I go, like rural Pennsylvania, I'm psyched, like whatever. Yes. But that's the thing is that there's like the suitcases come back full of what have you, you know, and they also leave with it too. Um, there are these studies that look at this, the wild food subsistence foods caught and that are, you know, harvested in rural Alaska and then follow them where they go. And there's this incredible food map where people are sending these foods, like real true Alaska native soul foods, you know, they're sending them to Seattle and Anchorage and Juneau and, and the food is sort of carrying with it this sort of cultural significance as well. 
food is a love letter. Food is a, is a family mantle. Food is a thing here. The wild foods here have like a lot of significance and they go, they go way outside. People go all the way to Florida to visit relatives who are also Alaska native and bring with them caribou meat and maybe some seal, maybe some muktuk. So, you know, it, it's a way of, we look at food in this kind of interesting way that kind of makes me think of like the the early days when there were like trading posts and people were carrying things of value long distances and then trading them. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to work the TSA security line at those airports because I imagine what's coming in and what's coming out is so interesting. Oh my God. Somebody, um, this woman here who, who uh, has written a couple of cookbooks, Kim Sune, she like brought like a leg of prosciutto from like, <laughs> he like carried it. And, it, but, and the only time it was like, it, it, yeah, it was like no big deal. Like it worked out fine. But, um, you know, coming through customs in Alaska, they were like, oh yeah, we get it. <laughs> I was like, all, I was like needing to write this recipe for caribou meatballs, but I like had this trip to Cleveland and I like frosted the caribou and I put it in the refrigerator and I kept meaning to make it, but then it got busy. And then I was like, crap, I got to like take this caribou on the plane what am I going to do? So I put it in like a ch- children's lunchbox with like an ice pack. Okay. And I like went to TSA and I was kind of nervous. And I'm like, listen, there's caribou in there. And they're like, oh yeah, that's cool. It's no big deal. Oh, perfect. Um, they're like, we ne- we've seen, you know, cause they're like, they're like people bring in tusks and like antlers and stuff. <laughs> so a little bit of caribou in a kid's lunchbox is no biggie. They were totally, I mean, I was like, it's not really a gel. It's like, um, yeah, but that it totally worked out fine. And the moop, the meatballs were great. So, oh, I love that. Well, I saw that recipe online um, through your regular food column in the Anchorage Daily News, I think, is where I saw, well, at least I saw a beautiful looking like um, spaghetti with a red sauce on it. So, that's it. Okay. Um, there was also a foolproof wild blueberry pie and um, raspberry jam for dummies. Those were two that caught my eye. So I was wondering, tell me about the rewards and challenges of writing a weekly food column. If you look at newspapers nationwide, they're really trying to experiment with the newsletter model. And one of the places where they find like an invested audience is the the world of food. Mm-hmm. And I know from my book project, because I've been doing a lot of crowdsourcing and talking to people online and sort of asking questions to readers is that people here are totally obsessed with food, <laughs> but it's like not in quite the same way that like readers of the New York Times food section, you know, which I also sometimes write for are obsessed with. Yeah. I've been doing the newsletter like mm, three and a half months now. Okay. It's really, I'm really working to calibrate it to be useful to readers here in terms of what they're really looking for, how they really cook and what they really eat. And one of the things I think is just that like they substitute a lot. They are really practical. As a general matter, you know, Alaskans, if nothing else, are really practical. So just Mm -hmm. not trying to be too highfalutin, I think is like pretty key. I just rewrote a recipe headline I because I also edit the other food content. We have another wonderful uh, recipe writer, Maya Wilson, who has a book, Alaska from Scratch, that some of your listeners might be familiar with. I rewrote a recipe, uh, the headline of one of her recipes, it was like, this fall time pasta fagioli soup is um, great for a cold day. And I was like, nah, because in it, she talks about how she's trying to knock off Olive Garden. You know, it's like a copycat recipe. And I, if I write a headline on here that's like copycat Olive Garden, 
the readers are going to be more interested. Oh, absolutely. I just really enjoy keeping it real, you know, really talking about how people really eat. And I have absolutely no aversion to like including prepackaged things. Like I'm working on a spam masubi recipe like right now. It's nice to go with what works and what people are actually doing instead of what I call like aspirational cooking. I mean, I love looking at those articles, but when I see out of the 10 ingredients, there's eight of them that I don't have and two of them that I have to look up to even figure out what they are. I I just kind of get exhausted. So no, I get that. People are busy. People are cooking to survive. Mm -hmm. You know, they're cooking because they're trying to make money. I mean, food has just foods, all these things that isn't that aren't food. Right. Yeah. No, it, it, it reaches into so many areas of our life. When you were talking about, you know, the, the longing for certain places, it made me think, I think you said that there's not bakeries in the rural Alaska areas. And I've always thought, oh, I could live in Alaska. And then you said no bakeries. And I was like, oh, I'm out. You know, that's, <laughs> that wouldn't work for me. So what are the things that you or your family miss the most? Even in Anchorage, like, I mean, I was just in Cleveland and I went to the West Side Market and I was like looking at those tomatoes because like many Alaskans don't like tomatoes because tomatoes are one of those things that just like doesn't do well after two being packed, you know, unripe and traveling for two hours. I mean, two uh, weeks on a, in a barge. So right, I was like, give me your largest tomato that you have. And they gave me this like enormous, like crazy looking heirloom tomato. And I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And then um, they were like, that'll be like $2. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that, that I like produce and, you know, and all kinds of stuff like that, you know, going on the plane up to rural Alaska, you don't go up there without bringing produce. You know, it's like, I have these memories of being like a kid, just driving like out of Anchorage with my aunt, like with two like cantaloupes in my lap, you know? Right. <laughs> And that's just like manners. Um, Yeah, you just don't dare show up without fresh produce when you're visiting those people. When I was sort of poking around on your Facebook page, it looks like you have a group for testing Alaskan recipes. What I'm doing right now is most of the recipes I'm writing are going to be collected in the book, but trying to write recipes that are really things that are made, things that are really part of kind of an Alaskan kitchen sort of. Uh, canon. And so, and I, and I'm certainly no expert on any of that. So I've just been, I've been crowdsourcing like crazy. And also I have these like cool people who, if I say, okay, here's this recipe from 1932. And I like dolled it up a little bit. Can you make it? They'll totally make it. And then like, send me their feedback. I'll share that with our listeners. I think we definitely have a few that would be interested in that. Well, when I was looking at your Instagram, I saw you listed yourself as a mama. So I hope you don't mind me asking, what desserts do you make for your kids? What do they like? Oh, man, they're so picky. (laughs) They like to have chocolate chip cookies. They like to have sugar cookies that they've been into sugar cookies they could cut out. We just made some of those in mustache shapes. Oh, fun. And then we went hard on crisps this summer. I was testing that recipe, but then I I realized that my son, who only eats like peanut butter on white bread, that he was like into rhubarb crisps. So we started making that. Oh, heck yeah. That's a vegetable. I mean, that that counts. Uh, Well, Julia, our final question, one we ask all of our guests, if you could eat only one dessert for the rest of your life, what would it be? hard. I'm going to have to say it would be lemon meringue pie. Oh, okay. That my mom makes this one 
Like she makes the pudding. She's like an expert at pie crust and then that meringue on the top. She does it in such a way where it doesn't get like weirdly slimy or taste a little bit like a wet dog. You know how a meringue can taste like a wet dog? <laughs> I get the weeping sometimes. I've never had the wet dog experience. Maybe I should count myself lucky. My mom also makes a great lemon meringue pie. So I think that if I was going to have one... It would probably be that. Oh, that does sound good. Well, thanks to our guest today, Julia O'Malley. You can find Julia's writing and recipes online at her website, juliaomalley.media, um, or in her weekly column and newsletter in the Anchorage Daily News or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Uh, thank you so much, Julia. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, Andrea, thank you so much for that wonderful interview with Julia and lemon meringue pie we clearly have to get julia a tried and true recipe since that's one of both of our favorites but it sounds like she's still maybe searching for her uh, tnt recipe herself indeed oh she was so much fun to talk to that was just a, a complete delight and listeners i hope you enjoyed hearing my interview with her as much as i enjoyed conducting it you know, you said in the beginning of the interview that we think she is just kind of the ideal preheated guest if we had to come up with with someone to talk about these things that are so important to you and I and, and I know to our preheated community. It is that the art of baking and the ritual of sharing is so important to us as bakers and building that community. And it's, it's really incredible that that's what she has experienced as an Alaskan and ha has historically been going on for so long in these Alaskan communities. Yeah, I, when I listen back to our interview, you know, she said things like food is a love letter. Yeah. It actually made me think back to your interview with Helen Goh, the pastry chef at Otolenghi, and how she said, cooking is a necessity, but baking is a choice. Yeah. And it, it's just, they're definitely, their philosophies are right in line with us and right in line with, I think, many of our listeners who see baking as something we bring to people we love, and it strengthens that community and that feeling of support. Absolutely. And Andrea, I also really think that you might be an honorary Alaskan with your love of substitution and, you know, going off the page, <laughs> because one thing she says is that, <laughs> that Native Alaskans and remote folks in these remote locations are super, super good and comfortable at substitution, which is one of your like power skills as well. Indeed. Maybe I might be an honorary Alaskan, although as you heard me say, once I heard that there were no bakeries in many parts of Alaska, I did rule out potentially moving to Alaska. That was kind of a deal breaker for me. <laughs> well, it's definitely another stop on the preheated road trip. Oh, yes. Yeah. Anchorage or places further afield. I think here we come. So thank you again for chatting with Julia. And thanks uh, also to Megan for, for helping us set that up. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get this episode on to the cooling rack. Next week, we'll review our pumpkin pretzels and introduce our final pumpkin goodie, a pumpkin cookie with caramel frosting. So many good words in that sentence. And we'll step into the language lab for a fun chat about foods named after cities. Nanaimo bars are just the beginning. Thanks again so much to Julia O'Malley for our fun and informative interview and to Megan Rishot for her help in putting us together. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please do tell a friend and subscribe. And if you have some extra time, consider ranking and reviewing us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London.
Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, performed, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.